Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. This week we continue our series, Changing the Way You Think, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And today's message is brought to us by our lead pastor, Mike Yearly, and it's entitled, Accountability. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now. I think this is the seventh message on the book of uh, 1 Corinthians and Changing the Way You Think. And we really enter into a new section today. The first, uh, the first few weeks, we've been in uh, chapters 1 through 4 that hang together as a unit. They really deal with this whole issue. They were having a leadership problem in Corinth, and they were dividing over the leaders. I'm of Paul. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And so this raises a bunch of issues about God's wisdom versus human wisdom, what it means to be countercultural, and it raises a bunch of issues. And so the Apostle Paul deals with those issues in chapters 1 through 4. But today we move into a new section in chapter 5 where he begins to deal with another problem he'd heard about in their church, and it was a big one. Uh, they had a problem of major sexual immorality going on in their mix. Uh, in fact, what was happening was they had a man who, in their congregation, a member of their congregation, he's one of their life groups a whole bit, and uh, he was uh, having an affair with his stepmother. And the church was just sort of like shining this on, like it was no big deal. Uh, maybe they thought that they were so sophisticated, it didn't really matter, you know, it's no big deal. Uh, maybe they thought that uh, they shouldn't judge. Maybe they thought that it would work out, it's, it's, uh, work itself out, we don't know. But they were not dealing with it. And so the Apostle Paul writes to tell them, what are you thinking? You know, hey, we got a major issue here. You're supposed to be so mature, you need to be dealing with this. Um, but along the way, he raises issues about accountability. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What it means to be a follower of Jesus in a church, in, in the body of Christ? And so that's our topic today. And so we're going to be jumping in in chapter 5. We'll cover the whole chapter. And you'll see there on your note sheet, there are actually three sections we'll break this chapter, uh, chapter into as we, we go through it. So let's jump in. Chapter, one of, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says it's actually reported, in other words, he'd heard it through the grapevine, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. Now, of course, remember, they're, they're living in Corinth and sexual immorality was a way of life. Mistresses, prostitutes, I mean, this is very common. But he says, hey, you've got some sexual immorality going on in your church. It just, it's not even common in your culture there. And he says, um, well, what it is is that um, a man has his father's wife, so his stepmother. Okay, and you're proud. Verse two, you're proud. Remember, these people have been so proud about how mature they are, and what they're just such a a mature church. And he says, "You, you got to be kidding me. You're proud. Uh, Shouldn't you have rather been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship the man who did this?" Now, interesting. This is the first of four times that the Apostle Paul in this one chapter is going to say that if you have someone in your fellowship, in your church, in your life group, you're serving in the ministry, you've got someone who's part of your church and who is living in what the Old Testament would call high-handed sin, like blatant rebellion. We're not talking gray areas here. We're not talking immaturity areas here. We're talking blatant sin. Four times in this chapter, he's going to say, if that person is not willing to repent and follow Jesus and turn from that sin, that if that's the case, then you have to do the kind of, kind of remove the cancer. You have to ask the person not to be a part of your fellowship until they're willing to follow Jesus in that area of their life. And he's going to say it four times, okay? So that's the first one. Now, verse three. He says, even though I am not uh, physically present, remember he was writing from Ephesus a couple hundred miles away. He said, I'm with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this. In other words, as your spiritual leader, I've already made up a mind, made up a mind what you need to do in this situation. Um, 
as if I were present. Verse 4. Now, so here's what you need to do. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus. Notice when you come to church, okay? When next time you have church together. You see, when we get together on the weekends or in our life groups, we're not just kind of going through the motions. We're assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? And he says, so there's something supernatural that happens when the people of God come together like we're doing right now, right today. When the people of God come together, he says, this is a supernatural event. You know, many times people will say, well, it's just amazing during worship or during the teaching. I just felt the, I just felt like the Lord showing me stuff. You know, the, the, and it just happens so often in church. Well, that's, that's no surprise. It's like this is a supernatural event that's happening when we gather together. So he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Remember what Jesus said, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Okay, that's what he's talking about. He says, when, so when you, next time you get together, here's what you need to do. Verse 5, you need to hand this man over to Satan. Oh, that sounds pretty severe. Not a good day, you know. It's like, Joe... We're sorry, we're handing you over to Satan. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> yes, goodbye, good luck. You know, um, like not a good thing. So what does that mean to hand someone over to Satan? We'll talk about it in a second. It's very serious business. It says, so that, and the reason we're doing it, he says, you need to do this, is so that his sinful nature, his flesh can be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. You need to do this for this person's sake so they can come back to Christ. So, What's it mean to hand someone over to Satan? Well, in the Bible we know that when we become a Christian, in Colossians chapter 1, it says we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We, We shift kingdoms. There's a spiritual transfer that happens when a person comes to Christ. And so we move from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. We move into the family of God, into the church. And now we're with the people of God. So we've been transferred, you see. And so when a person is living in blatant sin and they refuse to change, Paul says you need to remove them out of your church and put them back into the kingdom of Satan. You need to hand them back over and say, hey, you don't want to be with the people of God? You don't want to follow Jesus? Then you can't hang out with Christians and enjoy the fellowship of Christians. We're going to have to ask you, we're going to push you back into the kingdom of darkness here. You want to live for Satan? Then have at it. Now, the question is, why would we do this to a person? This is very interesting, because I've heard this many times. There's very few churches who actually practice this, by the way. And, and what you actually often hear when you ask someone, uh, like, you know, someone's living in high-handed, clear-cut sin, and the argument often goes like this. It's like, well, at least they're coming to church. Right? Have you ever heard that? At least they're coming to church. Yeah, I know they're sleeping with their boyfriend. I know they're ripping people off in business. Uh, I, I know they're a liar. I know they're a slanderer. I know that, yeah, we, we all know that, but at least they're in church. And so maybe, you know, they'll hear the message, they'll hear the worship, uh, maybe they'll turn around. You know, at least they're in church. And Paul says, no, no, no. That's the worst thing you can do. Because what you're doing is when you allow someone who's rebelling against God to hang out with God's people, it's like you're saying it's no big deal. And what you're doing is you're teaching them that you can have it both ways. You can have a relationship with God and be rebellious. You're teaching them that, that principle. It'd be like having a child in your family who's living in total disobedience and rebellion. You just go, well, that's good. At least they're still in the family. Maybe they'll come around. You see? 
It just will never work. He says, no, what you need to do is you need to do a spiritual intervention in this person's life. They need like spiritual shock treatment. You need to help them to understand there's a spiritual reality. You can't have Jesus and have the world at the same time. And you're going to live that out in your congregation by asking this person to leave until they come back. Now, the question is, the next section there on your note sheet is why is this so important? Like, why is Paul so big on this? And the reason's very easy is that sin spreads. It's contagious. Uh, If you've ever been a school teacher, you understand this. You know, if you have like a couple kids in your class that are really rebellious and outspoken and smart aleck and they're just always acting out, and you just kind of say, well, I'm just going to ignore them. Uh, You come back about a semester later, you've got half the class acting like that, right? Why? Because we model off of one another, and when we see bad behavior, nothing happens. We're like, well, that looks kind of cool, and so we do that. And so sin spreads. So what the Apostle Paul is going to say is, no, sin's more like a a cancer. In fact, he uses this this analogy from the Old Testament. And so I've got to give you a little Old Testament history here. Now, if you've read the Bible or you've seen the the Prince of of Egypt, you know how this goes. But... um, you know, when the nation of Israel, they go down to Egypt, right? And so they're, they're there for 400 years and then in slavery. And then God sends Moses to deliver them. And he knows Pharaoh won't let him go. So you remember the story how God sends the 10 plagues upon the land of Egypt to force Pharaoh's hands. And the last plague was that uh, the angel of death was going to go through the land of Egypt and that he was going to um, strike down the firstborn of every child. And God said, he told Israel, he said, to make sure your firstborn sons don't get struck down, you need to take a lamb and you need to sacrifice this lamb. And you need to take the blood of the lamb and you need to put it over your, um, your door. So you put it on top of your door and on the two sign posts, side posts. And so it's almost like a cross. And he said, you need to put that over. And then when the angel of death comes through the land, he will um, pass over your house and he will not take the life of the firstborn. And so sure enough, that happens. And remember, Pharaoh says, okay, now you can go. Uh, and so they have to leave in the middle of the night, pack up and leave in the middle of the night, and they don't have time to make their normal bread for the journey. They don't have time to make the bread, let it rise, you know, put the yeast in, the leaven in, let it rise. And so they have to take unleavened bread. Okay? And so after that event, God says to the nation of Israel, from now on, every year, on the, first, uh, the 14th day of the first month of your year, I want you to celebrate the Feast of Passover to remember this amazing event. And then I want you to set, have, uh, celebrate after Passover, on the next days 15 through 21 or whatever, next seven days, I want you to, uh, to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and so you make sure you get all the yeast out of your house. No yeast in your house during that day, because, uh, during that week, because I want you to remember this great deliverance. And ever since you've, every year, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, get rid of all the yeast. Well, the yeast kind of represented the old life. It represented slavery in, in Egypt. It represented sin. And so this became kind of a metaphor for sin. So in this passage, Paul's going to say, okay, you need to get rid of this sin in your midst in Corinth because if you don't, it'd be like yeast that's going to spread through your whole church. He doesn't use the cancer analogy. He uses the bread analogy. And he says, Christ is your Passover lamb. And you need to now celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. Get rid of all the leaven, all the sin out of your church. Otherwise, it will spread. So let's pick it up. Chapter uh, 5 and verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Your Your pride is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast 
works through the whole batch of dough. So you need to get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see, for us as Christians, at the core of our Christian faith, and later we'll be celebrating communion today, is that we as Christians now, we were in slavery, not to Egypt, but in slavery to sin, weren't we? And when Jesus comes in, and instead of the judgment that should happen on our life because of our sin, God, the, the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, our Passover Lamb, is Jesus. And his blood has been put over the doorpost of our life so that God passes over us. You see, that's the message of the New Testament. We have forgiveness in Christ. And so that's what he says here. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, like the church of Corinth, they have all this fighting over their leadership, all this wickedness of sexual immorality. He says, let's get rid of that. But we need to celebrate with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Okay? So those are the first two sections. What's the problem? They've got incest going on at Corinth, and they're just not dealing with it. The second section, um, so why is it important? Because sin spreads. If you don't deal with it, it'll spread through your whole congregation. Now, this third section there on your note sheet, the question is, well, what should we do then? And he needs to clarify some things about church discipline. You see, the Apostle Paul had written them a previous letter before 1 Corinthians. We don't have that letter. It's called the Lost Letter. Theologians have come up with this great name for it, the Lost Letter. So it's called the Lost Letter of 1 Corinthians. So we don't know a lot about it. But in this Lost Letter, we do know from what Paul says that he'd written them. And he said, hey, you're Christians now. Don't hang out with people who are being sexually immoral. And some of them misunderstood that. They thought he meant kind of anybody who's sexually immoral, which really limits your options in life. You know, it's like you have to quit your job. You know, you can't, you know, go, you can go to the store. I mean, you know, and so he's now he's writing to clarify. He says, no, no, no. I didn't mean like stop hanging out with anyone who is, you know, sexually immoral. You'd have to leave the world. <laughs> he says, what I'm talking about is don't hang out with someone who claims to be a Christian and is living a blatantly immoral life. Okay. And so um, let's pick it up in verse 9. He says, now I have written you in my letter, my previous letter, the lost letter, uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy. It's not just about uh, sexual immorality. It's other issues as well. Greedy, they're swindlers, they're idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. Uh, But now I'm writing... Yeah, I'm clarifying to you now that you must not associate, ooh, pretty strong language, Paul, must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. Now, there's a key phrase. Self-identified Christian. He calls himself a brother. But is sexually immoral, um, so they're, uh, you know, uh, sleeping with their girlfriend. They're living together uh, it's a homosexual relationship. Uh, in the Bible, anything outside of a man and a woman in marriage having sex is called immorality. So he says, anyone's a brother is sexually immoral or greedy. Um, so they're maybe a businessman and they're just kind of ripping people off, that kind of thing. They're an idolater. So they're going out and worshiping idols or kind of mixing Jesus with other religions. Uh, slanderer. So they have a reputation for gossip and 
causing division in the body. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's just kind of like, oh, everyone knows that about that person. You know, wherever they go, there's trouble. Um, a drunkard, we might think of like a partier. A uh, swindler, again, kind of ripping off. And he says, with such a man, do not even eat. So, okay, so pretty clear, right? He says, if someone claims to be a brother and they are living in blatant sin, clear-cut sin, he says, hey, don't hang out. Don't associate. Don't let them be a part of your fellowship. Interesting. You know, um, a lot of you know that uh, years ago I used to work uh, a lot with uh, singles in a large singles ministry. And, of course, in a large singles ministry, you know, you, this was an issue you'd have to deal with. Sexual morality would come from time to time, and you'd have to deal with it. And so I'd often hear about this, and I'd, I'd uh, meet with a couple in my office, and I'd say, hey, I don't even know if this is true, but this is what I've heard, and, you know, can we just talk about this? And, and so, they, yeah, it's true. And so, so then my first question was always, well, let me, let's start first with, are, are you followers of Jesus? Um, have you given your lives to Christ? Are you Christians? And I'd kind of define what that was because it was a large ministry, so I didn't know everybody. And so I'd kind of define it uh, out. And uh, usually they would say, yes, we are. But it was a very important first question because if they said, no, we aren't, then we have a different conversation altogether. Because what the Bible will say here is that we are not accountable as Christians to hold the world accountable. You know, you go to your office tomorrow and... There's the first guy in the, the cubicle next to you is cheating on his wife. It's really not your business. You don't need to hold him accountable. He's not a believer. He's not a follower of Jesus. He doesn't go under house rules. I say, um, but he said, but so, so I would ask these people and they said, no, we're not a believer. And I, I would still need to act to protect the group to make sure that sin didn't spread in some way. But I wasn't responsible in the same way to hold them accountable because they're not followers of Jesus. You see? But he says, if someone calls himself a brother, he's a self-identified, now a whole different set of rules. Now he's under family rules. And he says, if someone calls himself a brother, then you need to be held accountable. And so, um, so we, would, we would talk about those things, and we would begin to kind of uh, get into it. Now, so Paul goes on here then in verse 12, or uh, yeah, verse 12. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church. See, no, none of my business. But he says, are you not to judge those on the inside? See, of course. He says, God will judge those on the outside. And then he quotes a verse from Deuteronomy where he says, expel the wicked man from among you. It's the fourth time he's going to say, if this person's not willing to turn, you need to act on it, okay? Now, today what I want to do in the time we have is I want to talk about this whole principle thing of accountability in our in, uh as followers of Jesus, and here at the Church of Rocky Peak. There in your note sheet, uh, note sheet, you have a section called Accountability 101. And I just want to highlight two very important principles as we move into our future here. Number one, if you want to follow Jesus, then accountability is a non-negotiable. Okay? That's the first principle. In other words, let's say that you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. And so you come up to me afterwards. And this happened last week, by the way. A person came up and said, I'd really like to become a follower of Jesus. Can you tell me how to do that? And so we just kind of prayed right here and he became a follower of Jesus. And so let's say you come up to me and say, I'd like to be a follower of Jesus, but I don't really want to be held accountable. Um, What I really prefer is do you have a plan, um, some kind of option, where it's just basically between Jesus and me. 
You know, I just, I, I really feel like I need Jesus. I don't really feel like I need other people. I, this whole church thing, Christians thing, I'm not real so big on that. But I'm really big on the Jesus thing. I would love the forgiveness of sins option. You got that one? And, um, but, but I'm not really into the account. You know what I'd say is I'd say, no. No, that's not an option. There is no option of I want to come to Jesus, but I don't want to be accountable to Jesus' people. There is no option like that. Because why? Because we are the body of Christ. And, and I, when I come to Jesus, I'm connected to Jesus, but I'm also connected to you. The same spirit of, of his that comes into me is the spirit in you. We're all connected. There is no option here. Is that when we follow Jesus, we automatically become a part of the family of God. We're not just born again. We're born again into the family of God. See, we're in a relationship. So there really is no option. And someone says, well, I don't want to be accountable. Well, then it's like, well, then I got a word for This isn't the church for you, Right? Because the church of Jesus, we're in accountability. And I'll tell you what, this is such an important principle because we all need it, don't we? We all need accountability in our lives. Uh, we, we, we need to hold each other accountable. We, we can't really grow without it. I need you, you need me. We need people in our lives. Every one of us here needs people in our life that feel the freedom to come and say, you know, I'm uncomfortable about this direction you're going. Can we talk about that? Every one of us needs to have people in our life that, are, that we have accountability with. You know, a few weeks ago, I don't know, a couple months ago or something, I had some interaction uh, with someone, uh, and uh, uh, Dave Cox was there and kind of part of it, you know, Pastor Dave Cox, and uh, he was part of this. And I just didn't feel very good about the interaction between this, this third party. It wasn't with Dave, it was third party. I just felt like, nah, I'm not sure I handled that really well. It wasn't like some huge thing, but I just felt like, no, nah, I don't think I handled it very well. And so I asked Dave, and we talked about it, and I said, you know, I think I need to go talk to that person. I need to make sure our relationship is right. I need to apologize for not handling that better. And so, uh, so I did, and we worked it out, and that was all good and everything like that. And later in the day, Dave calls and says, so how did that go? How did that the situation go? And I said, that worked really well. You know, I apologized, and I groveled, and, and uh, they, uh, they, they were gracious enough to forgive me, you know? And so it's great and stuff. And, and so uh, while he's on the line, I said, Dave, can I tell you something? And he said, sure, Mike. And I said, um, I just want to be really clear on this, is that if... Um, if there's ever an area of my life, you know, it's my personal life, my leadership life, doesn't make any difference, but if there's ever an area of my life that you feel uncomfortable about, I, I want you to know you have perfect freedom to come into my life and to raise that issue. In fact, I would ask you to do that. And, and he said on the other line, he said, oh, Mike, I already knew that. And he's like, well, that's good, Dad. I just want to be clear here because I need people like that in my life. I remember when I first came on staff here, and as head of the, this uh, kind of kind of head of the organization financially or whatever, uh, I was meeting with uh, Brenda Campbell, who's the director of our finances. And so it's like you know, my job is kind of you know oversee the finances, whatever, know what's going on. And but there's really no one overseeing me. And I said to Brenda, "Hey, Brenda, I just never want to cause any troubles here with the way I handle finances of this church. So I know you report to me." But I just want you to tell you, if you ever have any concerns of any financial decisions I make or any way I spend money, because, you know, you have flexibility in your pe- personal accounts and things like that, the way you spend. Th- I said, if you ever, w- would you come to me? I need you to come to me. I need that in my life. I want to make sure that I never in any way compromise my leadership, the direction of this church by the way I handle money. And so would you, you see what I'm saying? See, we all need this in our life. We need people that come, can come and say, hey, Mike, the way you responded to Lynn at that meeting felt uncomfortable to me, your, your wife. You know, the way, you, the way you spoke to her, just, it didn't feel right. I need people in my life who have the freedom to come and say, did you handle that well? 
Are you handling that well? We all need that. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that not only is that uh, important on a personal level, it's so important for us on a corporate level as a church. And he said that uh, because if we don't, he says sin is like cancer and it will spread. Um, Now, I realize that this flies in the face of our culture, this whole idea of accountability. Um, Remember a few weeks ago, we started this series, like the second message in, I did a message called Countercultural. And we talked about how Jesus' ways and the world's ways are often countercultural. And so that if we as a church want to follow Jesus, we're going to have to decide at times because there's going to be certain things our culture has taught us that Jesus is going to say, no, you have to go a different way. And these things are going to clash. And so what we do at those times when they clash will determine the maturity of our personal life and our church, you see. Well, well can I tell you something? This is one of those times where our culture comes to us and says, no one's going to tell me what to do, right? We, we run our own ship. We are our own person. We're Americans. <laughs> we are free. So, no, and so there's this tremendous shift in our culture away from responsibility and onto rights, see? And the Bible comes and says, no, 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 no. As a follower of Jesus, it's not about rights. It's about responsibilities, let me give you an example. I remember one time I was talking with a lady, and uh, she was a very gifted vocalist, and she was on one of our worship teams at the ministry where I was at, at the time. And, uh, and so uh, we'd heard through the grapevine that she was sleeping with her boyfriend, in fact, that this was a pattern for her. And so obviously it's an issue we've got to deal with, and so, you know, set up a meeting. And it was so interesting because, you know, we, you, know you never know in a situation like that, is this really the truth or is it a rumor, someone's slandering them? So you never assume it's true. But you just sit down and say, hey, I heard the craziest thing. Is there anything to this? And, uh, and I'll never forget her response. She looked and she said, look, I'm on the worship team. I'm an adult. What I do in my personal life, on my personal time, is none of your business. Now, interesting. It's like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. No, okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll change churches. Rocky Peak. No, just kidding. Um, uh, no, just teasing. Um, but interesting, isn't it? Doesn't, isn't that a reflection of our culture today? It's like, oh, I got this right to privacy. Like, no, you don't. You're part of the body of Christ. And what you do affects me. This would make sense, you know. What Paul says is we are all united to that. We're all connected. And what you do impacts me. And what I do impacts you. And so here's what, here's what, this would be like this. It'd be like going to the doctor and having him say, you have cancer in your lungs. You come back and you say, I say, how'd the appointment go? Oh, it's great. I've got cancer, but it's only in my lungs. No problem. The rest of me is good. As long as I don't do marathons, I'm fine. No heavy breathing, you know. <laughs> like, how crazy would that be? Because, like, if it's in my lungs and I don't deal with it, it's going to be in my body, right? And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, in the bo- we're a body of Christ. And if you allow sin to go unchecked, it will spread through the whole body. Now, I want to be real clear here, just to make sure we understand this. We are not talking about perfection, Right? Uh, the Corinthian church was an incredibly immature church. Paul's not kicking out everyone because of their immaturity. He's, he's, he's saying you have to kick out someone 
when there's high-handed sin, the kind of thing he's talking about in chapter 11. Everyone knows it. So how does it look like? Okay, we have a contractor, goes to Rocky Peak, does work for people in the church, and then takes their money, doesn't finish the job. What do we do with that as a church? Well, I'll tell you what we do with it. We either make it right or we say, this is not the church for you. See? Well, we have someone that's like, they're, they're married and they're having an affair. What do we do with it? We, we, we go and we say, hey, what's up with this? We try to restore them, but they're not willing to turn from that. We say, this is not the church for you. Someone's in our life group. They have a reputation for slander and gossip. Wherever they go, uh, problems uh, follow them. They're just always the one tongue, this, 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 the rumor bell. Uh, they're causing divisions wherever they go. Wherever they go, there's always conflict. Once you recognize that pattern, we talk and we confront. We say, this has to change. And if it doesn't change, we say, you know what? This is not the church. You see what I'm saying? This is what Paul is saying. And it's funny because many times we can read the word of God, it's so clear. And yet when it comes to applying it, like at our own church, we go, really? Uh, Yeah, yeah, really? Yeah, he really, I mean, he says it four times. Four times he says, look, you got to act on this. I'm telling you, it'll kill you if you don't. You know, I'll tell you, this was so important to me. When I came to Rocky Peak and I interviewed with the elders and they had three days of questionings for me, and then I got to ask one or two myself. And, um, and uh, so, but one of my questions for him was, how do you feel as an elder board about church discipline? How do you feel about holding people accountable? I said, because if you don't feel comfortable with this, then I can't come. That's how important the issue is to me. I'll tell you why, because you cannot lead a church well if a church is not willing to deal with high-handed, blatant sin in the midst. It will corrupt the whole body. It will take down the whole church. It will destroy the work of Jesus in the church, you see. we got to decide, are we with him or are we not? And i tell you what, this is not something the Apostle Paul made up, by the way. I want you to look at one passage, then we'll go on to the next point. Go with me to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 18. Now, this will be a familiar passage to some of you because it's often used to talk about conflict situations. In fact, Next week, we're talking about how to deal with conflict, and we will come back to this passage for that purpose. But Matthew 18, yeah, sorry. Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, so like a 1 Corinthians 5 type of thing. He's slandering you. uh, He's uh, ripping you off. There's something going on. You know, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Okay, so go and just have a conversation and, and say, I've got an issue with this. and see if you can work it out just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. It solves it. Verse 16. But if he will not listen, and he just blows you off, no way. Uh, you know, so, so what? I haven't finished the contracting job. I don't really care. You know, it's like I've been really busy, and maybe I'll get to it, maybe I won't. Okay? He says, if he will not listen, then take one or two others along. So you take a couple witnesses so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay. Now, what if happens he still doesn't change? Verse 17. Well, if he refuses to listen to them, you take it to the next level. You tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then you treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. See, he's like, you're not part of the fellowship. You see? So this is not something the Apostle Paul made up. This is what Jesus said. And so we just have to decide as a church, are we serious about following Jesus or not? This will be a key thing for our future. Are we going to deal with issues in the body or are we, are we not when they, when they emerge? Now, the second principle 
goes like this. And this kind of balances the first one. And it's important both of these go together because sometimes churches will say, okay, we're going to be really, we're going to hold each other accountable. But then they get really harsh in the way they do it. They get really vindictive and harsh. They get proud, looking down the nose, kind of this we're better than you kind of attitude. And that's like as bad as not dealing with it, you know? So, so uh, there's a second principle that goes like this. That the purpose of accountability, like why are we holding each other accountable? The purpose of accountability is protection and restoration, not condemnation. Okay? So the purpose of accountability, when we hold each other accountable, it's not about condemnation. It's about protection and restoration. It's about, first of all, protection, okay? And by protection, I mean protection of the church, protection of the body. The first reason we practice church discipline is to protect the church. This is what Paul says. It's like cancer, and if you don't deal with it, it spreads, so you've got to protect the body. It's very interesting to me. As you study this passage, what, we, what becomes clear is that Paul's primary concern is not with the individual who's gotten off track, he understands that. People get off track in a church. That happens. He's not upset with them like, I can't believe you have someone in your church who's off track. What are you thinking? He's not upset with them like that. What he's upset with is they have someone who's off track and they're not dealing with it. That's what he's upset with, you see? That they're not protecting the body. I mentioned that when I would meet with a couple that were, you know, uh, having an uh, illicit sexual relationship. And we talk whether they're Christians or not, but then the next thing we would do is we would kind of go through, so I said, would it be okay if we go through some scripture together on this? And we go through some scripture, what the Bible teaches about sexual purity. And often, you know, they just weren't really aware of it. I mean, it's like, yeah, they knew they probably shouldn't do it, but, you know, most people do, and it must not be that big of a deal, and that kind of a thing. And so you just go through some scripture, what God's word says about it, and it's like, whoa, their eyes get big, and it is a big deal. And, you know, yeah, it is. And you almost see their hearts turning, like, okay, well, maybe we need to rethink this, and that's good. And I said, well, but while we're on the topic... Let me show you kind of the other side of it. We've, we've looked at, at what the Bible says to you, but let's look what the Bible says to me as your pastor. And so we go to 1 Corinthians 5. And we read through this, and I would say to them, do you see this awkward position that I'm in? That, you, you know, if I allow you to continue on in your sin, then I am going to have to, be, uh, I'm going to, have to answer to this to Jesus. I'm going to have to be responsible to him. I, he's going to hold me accountable. You, you see this? And so those conversations would usually end like this. I'd say, so here's the deal. I want you here. I love you. I want you a part of our fellowship. I want you here. But whether you stay here or not is your decision. If you want to follow Jesus and stay with Jesus' people, then that's great. We want to have you. But if you don't want to follow Jesus, you can't be with Jesus' people. That's your choice. So it's, uh, what do you want to do? It's your choice, you see. But the one thing that helped them was to understand my position, that if I allowed them to stay in their sin and stay with Jesus' people, that I was going to have to answer. And see, this is an important principle for us as a church, is that if we allow things that are blatantly wrong to go in our midst and not deal with it, as a church, we will be accountable for that. And, and furthermore, the Bible says that Jesus will come and deal with us as a congregation. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to see him on that basis. You know, it's like, I really want Jesus to show up here, but not to deal with us because we haven't dealt with our own things. Let me show you what I mean. Take your Bibles. Turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. 
Now, some of you know the book of Revelation is a vision that Jesus gives to the apostle John. And the vision starts off with Jesus dictating seven short letters, almost like an email, actually, to seven churches that John was overseeing. And in each of these letters, these little emails, he usually starts off identifying himself. And then he, he, if there's anything good to say about the church, he says, I'm really happy with you here. And then if there's something, anything wrong with the church, he says, here's some areas you need to work on. And so this is very typical. In, in verse 12, he's writing to the, to the angel and the church at Pergamum. And he says, um, these are the words of him who has the sharp and double-edged sword. Now, in the opening vision of Jesus, in chapter 1, Jesus has a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And so this is just a way of saying, this is from Jesus. And then in verse 13, he, he gives them some praise for some good things they're doing. And then in verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught King Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, by eating food sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Now, this is a reference to the Old Testament. When Israel was in the wilderness, there was a false prophet called Balaam, named Balaam, and he led the nation of Israel into sin, into sexual immorality and, and, and idolatry by his teaching, you know, by his, his, his leadership. And so Jesus is saying, he says, you have some people there in your church at Pergamum that are kind of following the kind of teaching that got Israel off track in the Old Testament with Balaam, with this false name. And, and he says, you need to get rid of these people. You're allowing these teachers and you're allowing this teaching and you're allowing this immorality to go on in your church. He says, I have some things against you. You're doing this really well, but you're allowing this false teaching and this to go on. And he says in verse uh, 16, he says this to the whole church, catch this, repent therefore. Now he's not just telling the people who are involved in the teaching to repent, he's telling the whole church to repent. And the reason is because the church is allowing this to go on. He says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, uh-oh, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see? So Jesus says, either you deal with this, or I'm coming to town. And then this sword in my mouth thing, <laughs> it's getting unleashed. See, because I'm going to deal with it. And you see this in churches that don't deal with it as God brings a judgment on the church. Hey, it's like, hey, you're, you're not living up to family standards. Dad's going to have to come and deal with this, you see. And so, very important principle, that the first reason that we do um, we do church discipline, you hold each other accountable, is because we need to protect. We protect the body, okay? And God's going to hold us accountable to protect the body. The second reason, though, is restoration. When we discipline a person, when you ask someone to not to be a part of your church or not to be a part of your life group, it's not because we're angry at them. It's not because we think we're better than them. It's not because we're looking down our nose at them. It's not because we're trying to shame them. It's because we're trying to restore them. You see, some of you uh, have seen this happen. You have family members or a, a close friend who has gotten addicted to substance, some kind of substance, maybe it's cocaine or alcohol or something, and, and you see their life going down the tubes, and it's getting to a point where something severe has to be done. And often what you'll do, if you're, especially if you're working with drug counselors or that kind of thing, is you do what's called the intervention. 
Some of you have heard of this or been involved. And basically, you get that person in a room, and you get several close people around them who are close family friends or maybe their employer or things like that, and you basically confront them at one time, and you say, this is what your drug abuse is doing in my life. This is the pain it's causing to me. And at the end of that confrontation, then you'll say, and if it doesn't quit, here are the consequences. And usually it means withdrawing from a relationship or losing a job or things like that. It's an intervention. And the whole point of an intervention is to save the person. It's not to shame the person, it's to save the person. You see, it's a last-ditch effort to make sure that cocaine doesn't destroy their life. And so that's what this is. This is a spiritual intervention designed to restore the person, not to condemn them. It's helping them to see you can't have Jesus and have the world too. You have to make a choice. And we're going to make this painful for you to help force a choice. You see? And so that's the purpose. Now, Jesus tells us how we're to go about this. He gives an image. There was a time in Jesus' life and ministry, he was working with some of the religious leaders. And they were very high and mighty, very superior, looking down the nose at all the people who were doing the kinds of sins in 1 Corinthians 5. Right? And so Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how you approach it. He says, this is how God feels about it. He tells a famous story. Those of you who have been Christians a long time, you know the story, the story of the prodigal son. Those of you who are new at this, it's a story, if it was in modern day language, it's about a a kid who grows up in Iowa, you know? Ever see Field of Dreams? Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. Uh, Anyway, uh, he grows up in Iowa on this large farm. His dad's very wealthy, has lots of servants. And uh, he gets gets tired of life in Iowa, so he goes to his dad and says, Dad, can I have uh, a lot of money? I want my inheritance early because I want to go off and start some things on my own. The dad says, okay, gives him the money. The kid leaves. He moves to California. He goes to Hollywood, right? And he's in Hollywood, and he's going out, and he's, he's, he's kind of bar hopping and going to all the clubs and doing the clubbing thing. And someone shows him cocaine. He starts doing cocaine, and he's out to go to the women. And, and so it's pretty soon he's just all strung out on cocaine. His life's a mess. He, he spent, blows through all of his money. And he ends up on the streets, homeless. And all of a sudden, that home cooking back in Iowa sounded pretty good. And so he says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to Iowa. And I'm going to ask my dad not to take me back to the summit, just for a job on his farm. And he goes back. And you all know the story. Most of you know the story. Then when he comes back, remember what the father does when he sees him from a distance? He jumps out of his John Deere tractor. <laughs> and he runs through the cornfields, right? And he embraces his son. He says, man, welcome home. And the kid's trying to get it out. Oh, dad, I'm so sorry. I'm such a mess. I just want to judge. He's trying to tell him. Dad won't even let him get it out of his mouth. He says, I don't care. You're just at home. Man, let's have a party. It's party time. My son's home. And Jesus says, that's how you respond to someone who's gotten off track. You see? You don't respond with condemnation. You don't respond with, what were you thinking? You've blown all my money. I can't believe it. You didn't even send me an email. You're homeless? Come on. It was two million bucks. How'd you spend that? No, no, no. None of that. It's just about run to your son. I'm so glad you're back. And Jesus says, that's how the body of Christ needs to be to one another when we get off track. We run to one another. We restore one another. Uh, Paul says this later in the book of Galatians. It's to the right in your Bible. Well, unless you're in Revelation, then it's to the left. Yeah, sorry about that. Give you false directions. This is kind of a small book, Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have Bible tabs and you don't know your Bible real well, table of contents will probably come in handy. Chapter 6, verse 1. So Paul tells us, here's how you respond. 
when someone gets off track in your body. And can you see how this balances it out? Because on the one hand, we're to hold each other accountable. But it's always accountability that comes out of compassion and love. It's not a compassion that flows out of condemnation. And so Paul puts it real succinctly here in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. 6-1, brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, so you get off track, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're walking with God, you who are spiritual should restore him. What's the next word? Gently. You see that word? Restore him gently. And he says, and by the way, in the, while you're doing it, watch yourself or you may be tempted. Restore him gently. You know what? Uh, I was saying this week, this pastor, I was saying one time in my life, I was working with a young lady who had recently come to Christ. And uh, she had a really dramatic conversion. It's just a beautiful story how she came to Christ. Just really no church background or whatever. And uh, she came to Christ, started growing like a weed. And very shortly after accepting Jesus, the Holy Spirit began to show her that she needed to um, uh, stop sleeping with her boyfriend. She'd been, she'd been uh, you know, just dating a non-believer, two non-believers. Of course, you're sleeping together. It's the way, the way life is, you know. And so, uh, and so the Holy Spirit just begins to show her directly. She needs to stop doing this. And so she shared this with me that they're stopping doing this. And then pretty soon she, you know, felt like need to break up with this, this guy. And she's just growing like a weed and God's doing so many amazing things in her life. And, and we developed this friendship and she'd emailed me from time to time asking me questions about her new walk with Christ. And I'd often see her at church and give her a hug. And so we just had this, you know, this, this, uh, friendship growing, whatever. And so, um, there was a period of time went by and still within her first year of walking with Jesus and I hadn't seen her in a little while. I hadn't gotten an email in a while. I began to get worried about her. And so I sent her an email and said, everything okay? You're doing okay? And I saw her that next week at church and she came up and just said it wasn't that uncommon a story, but she said, you know, I, I kind of uh, started hanging out with my old boyfriend a little bit and talking a little bit. One thing led to another and, and we fell sexually and she's just broken hearted and her tears coming down her cheeks and and uh, she said, the last couple of days I've just been repenting and, and just fasting and praying and ask God to forgive me and and you know, it's just such a natural, it's just a perfect moment. Just put my arms around her and said, welcome back, you know. Welcome back. I said, you know, Jesus always cares more about where you're going than where you've come from. Always. And he is just so happy you're back. And I know the pain you're feeling. I know what it's like to be disobedient and to do something you know you shouldn't do and that pain is there. But I just want you to know that pain is curative. It's just God's way of helping you to get back on track. And it's a disciplined thing, but he loves you so much. And just welcome back. I'm so excited you're back on track, you see. And that's what we need to be as a body to one another. When we get off track, we need to throw our arms around each other and say, welcome back. So can you see the balance here? There's a balance. On the one hand, we hold each other accountable. We don't mess with that. We don't say, oh, whatever you want. You know, you, you want to go off and do all these evil things and, and it's no problem. No, we don't do that. We hold each other accountable, but it's always, it's, it's always out of protection. It's always out of restoration. It's never out of condemnation. And as a church... We're at Rocky Peak. This is a decision we have to make. Do we, if we want to move forward in the future God has for us? Do we want to be a church that takes Jesus at his word? Or we want to be countercultural? Do we want to grow? We want to run with him. Then if we, want, if we do that, then there's two things we have to do. We hold each other accountable. We do it with compassion. We do it with restoration. And that's how we grow together as a body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the way you teach us. God, we're just grateful for that. 
Lord, we would never learn this from our culture. We would never get this. It has to come from you. It has to come from your word. And so, Lord, we pray for the grace and the courage to hold each other accountable. We pray for the compassion to restore each other because we realize that we're all vulnerable. Next time it could be us. So we restore each other gently. We pray this in your name. Amen. You know, today it seems like a perfect day for us to celebrate communion. We've talked about Christ, our Passover lamb. We've talked about living out the life of unleavened bread. Living a life we leave the sin behind. And so that's what communion is about. It's a time we come before the Lord, remembering his death for us, remembering the forgiveness of sins. And it's also a time if we're off track and we're far from home like that prodigal, it's a perfect time to come and say, Father, I'm sorry and I want to come home and do this right. You know, and there's forgiveness at the communion table. And so I'm going to pray um, and uh, ask God to bless this time of communion, the elements. And then um, Jathan's going to come with the band and they do some special music for us and then lead us in a song of worship. And here's how it works. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus, then this communion table is for you. And so um, during the worship, at the time where you feel uh, most appropriate, you feel led or whatever, you're ready to go, just go to the communion table. They're all around the room. You'll notice in the front and back. And so just wherever you are, get up out of your seat and go and celebrate that and eat, eat of the elements, partake of the elements, and have that moment with Christ where you remember what it means that he's the Passover lamb and you recommit yourself to a life of unleavened bread. We live a life of unleavened bread. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are a Passover lamb. We thank you, you've delivered us from the bondage of sin, the bondage of Egypt in our life. And Lord, now we want to move forward and be what we truly are, as your word says, uh, unleavened people, Lord, uh, living lives of sincerity and truth, not malice and wickedness. So as we come to your table, we thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you for your body and your your blood that was uh, spilled for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Take our life and uh, conform it to your will. Isn't that what it's all about? We gather every week as followers of Jesus to learn more what that looks like. May the Lord be with you this week. And may this be a week of unleavened bread in your life. May it be a life without leaven. We get rid of the old leaven of malice and wickedness. And we embrace the new new loaf that is bread of uh, sincerity and truth, as the apostle says. I hope you can be with us this next week. Next week we go into chapter 6 and we'll be dealing with a section that deals with conflict and how to deal with conflict in our lives. I think it's one of the most critical issues that we have to learn as followers of Jesus is how to do conflict well. You know, before we come to Jesus, um, we have kind of old ways of doing conflict. We, we attack, we withdraw, we avoid, we pretend, you know. And, and yet one of the marks of a healthy person, one of the marks of a follower of Jesus, one of the marks of a healthy church is a, a group that learns how to do conflict well. We kind of move towards it, look for solutions, how we do that. And so the principles we'll be talking about are not only uh, important for us as a church, but they're important for a marriage, they're important for business, they're important for raising kids. And so it'll be a great time of uh, going into chapter 6 and talking about conflict. Hope you can join us. Until then, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm